When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Frightfest 2018 preview podcast series, and welcome, Tate Steinzik. Hello, Tate. Hey, how's it going? Happy to be here. Good to have you on the show. Now, uh, people who've been listening to the series will have heard me talk to uh, directors and uh, and writers, which director is in your wheelhouse, but we're going to be talking to your um, special effects and puppet design brain, if that's okay. Uh, absolutely. Now, just to get people, where most of the fun stories live. The what? Sorry, I said that's where most of the fun stories live. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> well, look, just to give people a, a bit of context for you, I guess um, you were in the top three SFX artists on the first season of Sci-Fi Channel's reality show Face Off. Um, mm-hmm. You've lent your craft and imagination to films such as The Amazing Spider-Man, Sharknado Two, um, episodes of Law and Order. And you've even been a rock band. Are you like the complete Renaissance man? Is this what you are? Well, I did my best to pull that off, you know. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, I had to put my musical aspirations aside and, and move full force with the uh, with the cinematic universe. But I, I guess, unfortunately, it's the wrong choice of words. I do miss uh, rock and roll, but uh, it's it's equally, if not more fun, being covered in blood constantly. So I probably made the right decision. Indeed, indeed. Now, we've, we've come to talk about uh, you leading the SFX team of Puppet Design on the 13th instalment of the Puppet Master series, Puppet Master The Littlest Reich, which... Um, yeah. Unbelievable the legs on that, uh, on that franchise, man. You know, the 13 films, I, I don't know, that might be a record for anything short of like, you know, Friday the 13th or Rocky or something like that. But uh, yeah, 13 sequels is pretty ridiculous. Yeah, because I was I was listening to an interview with uh, Dallas. Is it Sonia? Is it Sonia or Sonia? Sonia, yes. Sonia, and he was describing this latest one as being like a reboot. This, you know, it's um, the 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 best way to kind of illustrate it in you know uh, in current visual terms. It would kind of be like, you know, what's happening with with the uh, the Marvel and DC universes in the the cinematic realm versus television. You know, like. 
the, the Flash on TV is not the Flash in the movies. And, and there's kind of this alternate parallel universe thing happening between Full Moon's uh, continuing Puppet Masters. They're not going to stop making Puppet Masters, and wow. neither are we. Um, you know, so it's, uh, you know, it's sort of a handshake agreement, alternate universe, and with even, you know, uh, possibilities of the universes crossing over. That's been talked about as well. So, you know, lots of fun opportunities with keeping both, uh, both universes alive at the same time. Blimey. Now, before we get into more detail about the work you did on that, uh, let's rewind the clock back a second. Um, okay. And can you remember what was the first sort of special effect or visual effect that you saw on film or TV that sort of was the bug as far as you were bit? So it would have been uh, Michael Jackson's thriller, the making of Michael Jackson's thriller, um, you know, beta tape. Uh, my mom got me that when I was a kid, and it had Rick Baker, you know, putting, uh, you know, the, the, the bladders behind the prosthetic, showing how the face was moving in a sort of transformation sequence. And, uh, you know, so I, I went from thinking that there was an actual monster in this video to understanding that there are people that do this for a living. And, you know, it's, it's been a, a slow process of getting there ever since I saw that. But before I saw the video of Michael Jackson, uh, you know, that, that put that whole world into place for me, showed me Rick Baker, showed me that there was a, a world, a profession where you could do this. I saw the movie troll and, when I saw Troll, you know, there was this, I don't know if you remember, there was this ring with a needle on it. And if you get stabbed by it, you start, you sort of metamorph into a troll version of yourself. But first your skin sort of like furs over and you, you're in this alien sort of egg sack. And, yeah, it, uh, it goes like a kind of blotchy moss, doesn't it? And then an egg. Yeah, yeah. And then you burst open. And uh, I remember <laughs> that absolutely blowing my childhood mind like, trying to think how a person could sort of go into a pupil. Because if you remember, it was Sonny Bono that got stabbed by that thing. And then a little mini Sonny Bono elf came out of an egg version of himself. And that was just way too much going on for my five-year-old mind. It, it absolutely <laughs> warped me. Uh, but, yeah, warped me in the best of ways because now I figured out a way to take that warping and, and turn it into a money-making endeavor. Now, <laughs> <laughs> is it is it? As an aside, Rick Baker, obviously, he, he retired in, um, in 2014. Now, I saw an interview with you from before then saying how you'd love to work with him. Did you ever get that opportunity? I did not. Um, but I did get uh, a couple of opportunities to meet him. And uh, actually, the coolest thing, uh, after, you know, Face Off, I did season one and season five. That was, you know, so much fun. Yeah. Uh, they called me back for sort of an off-spin of Face-Off called, uh, called Game Face, mm. which was uh, sort of a condensed version, like, you know, what Chopped is to MasterChef or something. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, so it was like, you know, one day, of, uh, one day of going in and jamming on makeups in a competition format, and Rick Baker was one of the judges on that, uh, which was absolutely ridiculous because... You know, Rick Baker would come over to my table while I'm, like, laying hair. I remember one in specific. I was doing a, a sort of um, swamp witch, and yeah. I wanted this really coarse hair. So I'm laying this yak hair down on her head, and Rick Baker comes up to me and is one foot away from me. And he's like, you know, I don't know that I would have made that same choice with yak hair. It's very long and heavy and coarse. And I'm sitting here, and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, like, I know why I chose to use yak hair. 
But right now, do I, you know, do I curtsy and bow as every good FX person should in the presence of Rick Baker? Or do I tell him <laughs> what my intentions are and try and not be disrespectful about it? So I went that route and I told him and he kind of gave me the eyebrow and walked away. But um, ended up, he selected me as the winner, and he told me, he was like, man, I didn't think you were going to be able to pull that off, but you did this beautifully. So not only did I get to meet my hero, but I stood my ground, I, you know, I ballsed up for a minute, and it ended up paying off in my favor. So, yeah, awesome guy, uh, really approachable and humble, and, uh, you know, one of those dream come true sort of moments. Can you, can you imagine what your six-year-old self would think? <laughs> uh, and I, my, I try not to think about it because I feel like I might sort of create some, you know, continuous <laughs> explosion in my head. Like I've done way too much. I've done way more than I should have for you know a redneck out of Oklahoma, man. You know, I I was milking cows when I was in high school. You know what I mean? I shouldn't be you know telling Rick Baker how I choose to lay yak hair. Um, <laughs> but I've been blessed in my time, so. I can't complain. I was fascinated by something you said about when you um, when you sort of finished early at, at Savini's school, where you said uh -huh. you said something like, "As soon as you learn to make a mold, the little light went off, and everything else made sense." What, yeah. What was the light that was dim, and what was it that made sense that didn't before molds? Well, you know, I couldn't. I didn't have any. Because again, to reference the fact that I'm, you know, a redneck, like yeah. I, I literally lived in the middle of the woods, like amongst livestock. You know what I mean? Like mm. there was no people around me. There definitely wasn't. It was, you know, pre-internet. There was no YouTube. There, uh, there was, you know, no people <laughs> for that matter. So there was no way to reference anything artistic. So I kind of had to just you know, use my imagination to figure out how things were made. And and in all of my imagining, I never conceived of how you take, you know, a sculpture and turn that into something else. I just, I was missing that gap of, uh -huh. of understanding at all, you know. Um, so when I went to Savini School, uh, you know, they handed me a block of clay. And, you know, I'd always been an illustrator. Uh, so I was really good with, you know, with drawing and understanding structure, light and shadow, all of that. But, um, you know, they handed me this block of clay and it just made so much sense. I'm like, holy shit, I can sculpt. I could already sculpt. Um, so, you know, it was really cool. I felt like I was discovering something, you know, before my eyes. And, um, and in fact, my sculpture teacher actually called me out and tried to make an example of me in class. Uh, much to his surprise, he was wrong. He, he thought that I was trying to, and this sounds very, you know, self-glorifying after the fact, so I apologize in advance. It's not what I'm trying to do here. But uh, he, he actually accused me of being a sculptor and lying and saying I didn't sculpt to get attention in class. I'm like, bro, I'm not here paying tuition to get people to look at me. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But thank you for the compliment, but, you know, also kind of screw you for calling me out in front of the class. Um, but uh, anyway, so long story short, he realized I wasn't lying, and he took me under his wing and kind of, you know, made me his protege. I'd go to his house after class and work on short films with him, and he'd show me some, uh, you know, some behind-the-scenes stuff. So, you know, it ended up working out really well. And uh, but anyway, back back to the main source of the story. Once I saw a mold be made, once yeah. I saw this creation of something that creates a negative, suddenly the understanding of negative and positive and how a casting material plays into that, you know, boom! And not only did the light bulb go go off, you know, the light bulb was created and then went off like 
everything suddenly made sense. Uh, so once that happened, I, I suddenly was sitting there in this sort of like beautiful mind moment where all of these things are like images and shit are floating around me. I'm like, wait, I can do this. I can do that. I can take a sculpture. I can do this. And, you know, suddenly everything literally came together and made sense. So uh, I packed up my stuff and, and left town. Um, <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to save myself another $40,000 in tuition. And, uh, and I'm just going to go do this. So, uh, you know, with the help of Tom Savini, who I, you know, I owe to this day, um, you know, he literally gave me a script. Um, he was like, you know, I was submitted this script. Um, I don't do effects anymore, but you know, it'd be, a, it's a good budget range for you to start, for you to cut your teeth on. And, um, yeah, I, I took the script called the director. It was shooting in New York, uh, drove to New York, did the movie and ended up living in New York for 10 years. Blimey. Um, so, you know, I, I, I actually owe Tom, uh, everything for getting me started in the field. Not only did he, uh, you know, take me under his wing at the, at his school, but he, uh, you know, gave me a script and sent me to New York. So, you know, awesome guy. So just, just as a, as a pre, just as, uh, we'll get into the present in a minute, but just, just one last question, uh, just as a precursor to the, uh, the Savini school stuff. What was the first effect you tried out, and how did it go? So, did you were you doing stuff before you went to school, as it were? So, what what did you try out, and and and, and how did it go? Well, no, because again, I didn't. You know, I I just didn't have reference of materials or reference. Of, like I was using ketchup for blood when I was a kid. You okay. know, like around the, you know to my to my mother's horror. You know, she couldn't keep a bottle of ketchup in the fridge. Um, but uh, <laughs> it was. Um, it, it, it was the, the first gag I ever did was on that set. Um, you know, that's kind of, you know, one of my big mantras and something that I, I tell people when I do Q and A's or appearances or anything. And they're asking me, you know, what's the, the number one thing that you can have as an effects artist. And, you know, my, my, you know, knee jerk answer is the ability to bullshit. And my second immediate answer <laughs> is, uh, the, uh, is the ability to think your way through it and back it up. You know, like you almost have to be a convincing liar with the ability to learn very quickly in this trade, because, you know, what happens when, you know, when you're, you, you know, you're vying for that job, you're trying to beat someone else out that has more experience. And, you know, you have to say some stuff sometimes to get the job. Sure, I can cut that guy's head off. Sure, I can build a woolly mammoth. You know, of course, who can't, you know, and then you have to go there. Then you have to, you know, once you sign the dotted line, you got to figure it out and figure out how to make this stuff and go deliver. And, and uh, you know, so that's sort of the high-stakes poker game of, of this art. Uh, you have to be able to troubleshoot. You have to be able to, to get the job itself. But, yeah, um, you you're, know, in, you're in, as, as, as a, when you get on board a film, you're forever faced with a new, with a, if, it's, if it's not just redoing some, rehashing something. So someone comes along with a unique idea about what they want to achieve. You say, I can do it. Then the next job you go in, you have no no way of proving yeah, that. Do yeah, you? yeah, 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 yeah. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, that's the that's the high stakes poker game. It's like, sure, I can create you an underwater animatronic. Like, okay, that goes against all the principles of everything. <laughs> Let's put electronics underwater. You know what I mean? But you have to say yes, uh, and then you go to your studio and you stay up twenty four hours a day and you. You figure it out. You call everyone in the industry that's smarter than you, and you create an amalgam of all the information you get, and hopefully it works. You know, so I, I, I mean, I, I was talking. We talking before we started, but my my friend uh, Dan Martin, who does who does special effects, and I get the impression there is a bit of a kind of there's a love between special effects artists, i.e., 
you can share experiences and 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 because it's all building knowledge to, to everybody else to have knowledge it seems well i'll say this it's it's a really good sort of defining factor about what kind of artist you're dealing with, whether it's an established, comfortable, you know, confident artist, yeah. or if you're dealing with someone that's trying to sell you how good they are with their mouth and not with their talent. Well, yeah. Because, you know, re really good artists, they've got no problem getting together, sitting down, having beers, talking about gags, talking about tricks. I figured this out. But then when you get to, like, the sort of, like, slimy underbelly of the effects industry, that's when you get all of the sort of cutthroat, you know, information hoarders, you know? So there, there's a, there's an underworld of effects artists that are really <laughs> gross, sort of trollish characters that are not fun to deal with. But, uh, you know, when you're dealing with, you know, like, actual awesome, just artists, man, you know? Yeah, not yeah, spend their money on hair dye and tattoos and fishnet, you know, underwear. Like I'm talking about people who have art inside them and they've chosen this as their way to express it. Those people, you can sit down and you can trade war stories all day long and they're the best people in the world. Yeah, yeah the high topic effects artists, you know, that's a whole different novel, man. Now let's get, in, <laughs> now let's get into uh, Puppet Master, the, the, the Littlest Reich. Um, as we said, 13th in the series. It's, yeah. it's, it's this, this sort of explosion, as you said, into this idea of universe building. So from, from the moment when, when you're sitting down with the, with the director, with the producers, I mean, you, you, yourself are a co-producer of the film, um, but, but when you're sitting down at the start with that whole big vision in, about to take place, because obviously it's not started yet, like you say, there's no precedent for it, you're about yeah. to kick off. So yeah. what did that, that mean in terms of you and the team you work with with puppet design and special effects because obviously they they're iconic because there was 12 gone already before so what's the challenge what was the challenge for you and what what did that produce for yourselves well the biggest the biggest challenge for us was was two things we were not going into the world of old puppet master mm -hmm. which utilized a lot of stop motion Okay. Uh, we, we decided ahead of time we definitely weren't doing that because we wanted to create environments and actions and responses, you know, live while we're shooting. Uh, and on the, the same sort of token, it was decided early on that we would not be using any sort of, of visual effects, uh, you know, CGI puppets, no digital created puppets, like everything would be practically shot. So that really only gave us, you know, two options, you know, rod removal, which we did, um, you know, green screen rods for rod uh, puppeteering mm -hmm. and, and then hand puppeteering or, or a little bit. We had a little bit of animatronics. We had a few animatronics characters, but, you know, there's just something inorganic about servos like on that scale anyway. Like, you know, okay. you can put uh, so, you know, um, we, we wanted things to move and feel very organic and very real. And the easiest way to do that is to use the human body to make it happen. So, um, you know, the, the, the crazy part was, which kind of, you know, throws back to what I said before, the number one ability of an effects artist has to be troubleshooting. Yeah. Um, you know, we had so much to build uh, in like six weeks time that we, the paint was still drying on the stuff when I showed up to set, you know what I mean? Like, we didn't even have time to go into a world of, of, of rehearsals and choreographing motions. And, you know, 
everything happened once we got there. So we had kind of a, a four-day, a three-day sort of, you know, puppet boot camp once we arrived to Dallas where just me and my team and, and every extra hand possible were getting to know the motions of, of the puppets, getting to know what we can do and what we can't do. And then, uh, and then immediately thereafter was the challenge of arriving to the location and saying, okay, well, this is an act. It wasn't a soundstage. It was an actual hotel. So when you think about old hotel rooms, what are they? Well, they're very small and very boxy. Mm. Uh, so where the hell do you hide a puppeteer? You know, there's only a bed and a TV, <laughs> you know? So uh, that became the new challenge. Okay, we've got a puppet running across the floor, jumping in the air, doing a flip, cutting someone's throat, landing on their face. Where the hell do I put a puppeteer uh, in this tiny room? So, uh, you know, yeah, it was a thousand obstacles to overcome a day, but that's, you know, that's the benefit of having a great team is you overcome those obstacles one at a time, and then you get the shot. What's, what's one of your... Uh... What's one of your fondest memories about how you kind of over, uh, how you overcome that challenge of the kind of small boxy room and where to put the puppeteers sort of thing? Well, I tell you, you know, there was a lot of those first off on this film because there there was as far as the puppets go, mm. there were there were little to no one take wonder moments. Like it was all okay. First take one sucked. Take two sucked less. Take three is almost an equal suck to like good. You know, then you start getting into take four where it's actually getting good. You're understanding the motion, the the angle, all of that. Um, you know, so, you know, there were lots of, you know, small victories in the world of puppeteering. Hmm. Uh, but the gags, as far as the gags go, um, there was one scene in particular where, um, Oh man, I can't give too much away. I don't want to spoil anything. But let's just say that like everything, all of the the, the active pieces in this uh, in this shot, this unwavering shot that there was not a cut point to edit to. Hmm. We had body parts coming off of the body, flying in the air, doing actual somersaults, and then flying into a toilet and had to land at a certain angle in the toilet. While the body prop that it fell off of fell out of frame with blood spraying in the air and other bodily fluids spraying, <laughs> all of this had to happen in one shot. I mean, we're literally challenging physics at this point. <laughs> you know what I mean? We're like, I dare you to step in. And, and I don't know what happened, but we got it in one take. And that was that was it made us look so badass, but we all just kind of looked at each other while everyone was clapping and praising on set. And we're like, holy shit, we couldn't do that if we had a hundred more chances. You know <laughs> what I mean? <laughs> and, and, and those small those victories are what makes it so much fun on set, man, because it, th there's an adrenaline about film that's, you know, it's something like out of Vegas. I keep throwing it back to poker, man, but it's everything you do, man. There's a shot. You're going to ruin it. There's a there's a chance that you're going to hold production up for an entire day. You know, there's all of these variables. And when you overcome that, you know, that's what really makes it worthwhile. There's, it's, there's, it's a, there's, there's a phrase I come across, which it's, it's, I think it's quite fitting for what you just described. It's going like when you've achieved what you just described, it's sort of uh -huh. like you look, you look at each other and you go, well, science can't explain that, can it? <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, that should literally be a T-shirt for every effects artist to wear because we're constantly coming up with ways to defy laws that, that define us. You know? So that is, in essence, our job. How can we make the unreal real?
Now, I don't want to. I don't want to make you uh, get into spoilers too much, but I think it's it's safe to say from what I've been able to glean, because I think it, it's safe to say if, if anybody goes and wanders on the internet, they're not going to find too much revealing about about what's in this film. They have to come and see the movie. But from yeah. what I understand, we can expect Blade, we can expect Tunnler, we can expect Pinhead and Torch. Yeah, that's as much as I understand. But can I mean, I know, I know everybody's sworn to whatever secrecy and stuff, but is there any sort of glimpse? I mean, you've given us something already, but is there any other kind of glimpse into what you've cooked up that's going to be a surprise in terms of uh, either SFX or, or new puppets that the Fright Fest audience can look forward to? Oh, man, yes. Uh, so many yeses uh, in answer to that question. There are... <laughs> So, in my opinion, some of the coolest conceived puppets of all the films are in this film. Um, there's just, you know, Craig Zoller's imagination is, I mean, it's otherworldly. This, We're only beginning to see this guy. I'm telling you, in 20 years, like, the guy will have a mantle covered with Oscars. And, and people will be giggling about the time that he wrote that Puppet Master movie. You know what I mean? I was going to say, like, Greg Zeller, who did Bone Tomahawk and Brawl in Cell Block 99, is, exactly. is the screenplay writer for, for Puppet Master, Littlest Reich. Exactly. And, and you know, it's, it's, such, it's such a blessing that, that we were able to get Zoller to, to come on this film hmm. because, you know, the, the, the characters, that, the puppets that he conceived were, are ridiculous. And uh, some of my favorite design work I've ever done. Um, so, you know, w without uh, spoiling anything, I can say that, you know, the fans of the original franchise are going to be very happy because a lot of honor and a lot of love and respect were given to the... Because I myself am a Puppet Master fan. I, don't, I didn't take this job lightly. You know, this was... You know, this is hallowed ground we're treading on here to a lot of people. Um... You know, so uh, every yeah. all of these, all of your favorite puppets have been treated lovingly, and you're going to be super happy. They are at their most brutal they've ever been. Every sort of like emotion and visceral anger killing thing you ever wanted to see your favorite puppet do, they do in this film. So you know, you're going to be super psyched about that. But to all the new fans that are just coming in. We have this whole array of brand new characters that are going to just, you know, blow everyone away. One of my favorite characters in all of all the puppets ever is in this film, and uh, and I wish I could spoil it for you, but you're just going to have to see it. No, 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 don't spoil it, please, don't spoil it. Um, <laughs> uh, what I, I, what I mean, it fascinates me in, in a wider sense, in, in, and, and it was something that I um, I heard you say about about doing about things for camera, which I thought was a great description. Of, of, of practical effects, and and it, and it got me thinking. You know, in, in this age of sort of CGI world building, where you know, when I watch a film now, like the whole city is CGI. Never mind the the, the kind of creatures that I'm watching and everything. So, exactly. What do you think it is though that still makes it compelling to filmmakers and people like yourself to 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 make stuff that's for the camera? Well. You know, I, I don't think that it's a coincidence that, that you don't get movies like Thor and Guardians of the Galaxy and all of these movies that are so emotionally impacting that they end up, you know, nominated for an Oscar or, or end up in some sort of legendary film status. Sure, they're fun, but there, there's, there's something to be said for the connection between a director to his actors to 
what is around them to draw emotions from, to draw, you know, inspiration and motivation from. When you're, when you're immersed in an actual environment that you have to react to, of course you're going to get better performances. Of course you're going to get better reaction and ultimately, in my opinion, a better product. You know, this is why, you know, the old Star Wars, it's not even a comparison to the new ones. Even the, the new ones, which are progressively getting better, I've been told. I don't even have enough interest to go see for myself. Mm. <laughs> you know, but like what I'm saying is there's the old films, you had to use ingenuity. You had to use uh, an understanding of framing and suspense and, and talent driven moments to, to paint this wide picture. You know, now directors can just paint the wide picture. I mean, literally they can paint the planet and then they can zoom out <laughs> space, zoom out further into the universe. Like there is no lens that, you know, there's nothing that can't be done. Yeah. And that's the problem. So by, by you know, reeling back and, and forcing things into a certain practical environment, you know, you can, you know, it's that, that fence you walk. Some people say it's limiting. I say that it adds, you know. So it depends on what kind of film you want to make. If you're making Cloverfield, you know, go make it on your computer. If you're making Evil Dead, that's in my territory. Indeed, indeed. One last thing. The poster is, uh, is a beautiful piece of work. Uh, and I think it gives it gives over to the tone that I think is promised by the fact that Craig Zalia is writing the screenplay. Um, yes. I mean, I think obviously there'll still be the sort of comic asides as part of the tone of uh, Puppet Master, but I guess there's also the, the poster alludes to some real horror as well. Oh no, no it's it's violent, man. Like <laughs> it, it's. <laughs> People don't understand, like, they're like, I watch horror movies. You don't watch horror movies like this. Not most of you, anyway. Like, I mean, there's the select few of you that have seen, you know, like, real, like, guinea pig type stuff. Hmm. But the, the, the reality is, you know, these puppets are vicious, violent little bastards. And they want everyone dead. Uh, and, and, and there are two, uh, two moments in this film that I think will be talked about kind of forever in, in, in the world of practical kills. Um, right. it, it's just, you know, some Zoller has zero rev, reverence for what bothers people. And, and that's not to say that he has no reverence at all. That's to say he's not bound by people getting their feelings hurt. And, and, and that's the most powerful thing about him as a filmmaker. Uh, he doesn't do it just to poke poke people in the chest or just to cross lines. He does what's right for the moment in the film. And that if, if that means making a world full of PC babies cry, then they'll be crying. And that's what's great about him. So this film is, is a testament to that. There are moments in this film that are just jarring. They're so violent. But, you know, that's what gets guys like me off. That's what gets worlds of horror, like real horror fans off. We're not your casual, you know, PG-13 Friday night at the movies horror film. You know, this is like get your friends, everybody head out, make sure you're half tanked when you're, you know, let's get nice and drunk outside the movie theater and let's go in and let's have a good time like we used to when we were kids. You know what I mean? Mm. It's a it, it's a drive-in movie, midnight movie sort of atmosphere. You'll want to high-five your friends every time you see a head roll down the stairs. You know, it, it's just a really fun sort of event. I think I I likened it to a Guar concert the other day, the way it makes you feel. You leave just actually <laughs> absolutely blood-drenched and speechless, and that's what a good horror film should do to you. Well, look, I don't think there's any more we could add to the anticipation of watching this film. So 
Thank you very much for joining us on the Britflix podcast to preview Puppet Master, The Littlest Reich. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. The Britflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.